seen the way the coach the previous year had run around, put his arms up in the air and jumped up and all that. And I thought, oh, what a poser. And I thought, I'm definitely not going to do that. You wouldn't want to know. By the time I'd got down to the fence, I was a raving lunatic. Do you miss him, KB? Yes, uh, I, miss him, I miss him a lot. We used to speak every day on the phone. When he was coaching the Tigers, for 10 years we had lunch three times a week. We spent so much time together. You know, I miss him every day. everyone and welcome to At The G. I'm Anthony Hudson. I hope you had a great, albeit different, grand final day and we're already looking forward to that one day in September returning to the mighty MCG next year. Of course, Richmond fans are on top of the world again and today something a little bit different which I'm sure Tiger fans and indeed all footy fans will enjoy some 53 years on from the last time Richmond met and beat Geelong in a grand final. It's an insight into the late, great Richmond coach, Tommy Hafey, who led the Tigers to four flags on the MCG, starting with that win against the Cats in 1967. Tommy passed away in 2014 at the age of 82 and was farewelled in grand style at the G with a memorable funeral service. I recently rediscovered an interview I did with Tommy back in 2001. Now, it was for a coaching special which was never actually completed, and therefore the interview has never been heard before. But as a man who coached 522 games, many of those at the MCG, I thought it was well worth listening to the wisdom of Tommy Hafey and his very definitive thoughts on how the game should be played. No finessing. I'm not a brain surgeon or a test pilot or anything like that, just a hard straight at the ball, and I think the game is still basically that way. As you'll hear, Hafey's style was created for success at the MCG, and to help us explore that link and learn more about the man himself, I chatted with Hafey's dear friend, AFL legend Kevin Bartlett, who will explain how important the timing of his appointment was. It changed the destiny of the Richmond Football Club, no doubt about that, it gave the Richmond Football Club a bit of stature. Tom Hafey had a modest 67-game career as a player for the Tigers. But as a coach, he would go on to lead Richmond, Collingwood, Geelong and Sydney. But his coaching journey actually started in the Victorian country town of Shepparton. Well, I enjoyed Shepparton. I coached Shepparton in the Golden Valley in the early 60s. The money was in the country, completely the opposite of the way it is right now. Players playing league football were all getting the same amount of money, whether you're the Brownlow medal winner or the last man selected. It was £10 a week, £200 for the entire season. Now, when you went to the country, and I know, I got £800. I got four times as much as the Brownlow medal winner. And you look at the great Bobby Rose. Now, Bobby Rose was the best footballer Collingwood ever produced. 
He won four Copelands. He was coaching Wangaratta Rovers by the time he was 26 years of age. So you can imagine the entire country was full of these ex-league people. And as a result, the interest in the country was unbelievable. Here was a great Billy Stephen, who was the best back pocket player in the competition, was captain of Victoria one year. The following year, he's coaching Yarrawonga. So when Yarrawonga played Wangaratta Rovers, you got Bobby Rose against Billy Stephen. So you can imagine the people flocking there. But the playing coaches, or the coaches were the only one who got paid, Anthony. The other players just played for nothing, and they just loved to be playing for their particular country town, or their suburb, or their district. That was the way it was. We chased players when I was at Shepparton. Might be a school teacher, might be somebody from Stock and Land or the bank. You never mentioned money to them because nobody got paid. And they would come to your club or go to Shepparton United or Lemnos or Marupna, all in that particular area, simply because they liked you or they knew somebody at the club. That's the way it was. So it was a lot easier to run a club instead of trying to raise a few bob for players who next year might be playing against you instead. Yeah, so it is a different scene. After success in Shepparton, Richmond came calling and Tommy returned to Punt Road, this time as coach. Kevin Bartlett says the timing was perfect because the Tigers' administration had secured a move to play home games at the MCG in an attempt to replicate the amazing success of sole tenant Melbourne. Melbourne went through that fantastic period where they played in grand finals in 54, 55, 56, 57, 58, 59, <laughs> 60, won again in 1964. So they were just so dominant. So you can understand Richmond saying, well, we've only played one final. We only live across the road from Melbourne. We've played one final since 1944. That they decided that if they could get to the MCG, maybe they could build a side that could win at the MCG rather than have a side that played at Punt Road. And that fitted into Tommy's thinking perfectly when he actually came along. So the two thoughts uh, matched each other because when Tommy came in 1966, Tommy was a, a huge fan of Norm Smith and his coaching of the Melbourne Football Club. He loved the way Norm Smith coached. So the MCG, as far as Tommy was concerned, was very important in his own coaching philosophy. So when you look back on that, that's a pretty pivotal moment in Richmond's history because you then obviously went on a, and a massively yeah. successful period where Tommy coached you to four premierships. It changed the destiny of the Richmond Football Club, no doubt about that. It, it gave, gave the Richmond Football Club a bit of stature that it probably didn't have at Punt Road and the lack of success. No one in those days sort of shared grounds and all of a sudden here's the, the mighty MCG, the home of Melbourne Football Club, the best team in the competition. And all of a sudden, Richmond Football Club's going to play its home games there. So what happened then was, of course, you had to then recruit players that suited the style of play that you wanted. Tommy wanted to get six-footers or six-foot-one players, you know, playing across the centre line uh, in Burke, Barrett and Clay uh, to give marking power and kicking power. Tommy was always keen to recruit players who could kick the ball a long way. And he built the side around those aspects, you know, across the half-back line, uh, Jeff Strang was an absolute dashing player, probably more of a modern-day halfback flank. We used to love the run with the ball and a thumping kick. Billy Barrett in the centre with his booming drop kicks. So that, that fitted in beautifully. He, he would recruit players who he felt could play the MCG. Tommy's idea was to get these players who would win the ball and then you'd run your full distance, take a couple of bounces. He loved players running and bouncing the ball and then kick the ball into the teeth of goal and then get players to contest strongly, you know, whether it be likes of Neil Baum or whether it be the Whale Roberts or Michael Green and then get other smaller players at their feet. So not only did they go to the MCG, but they actually recruited players to play the MCG. We trained very hard. 
because I really believe in fitness and we're always probably the fittest side in this competition. But the players knew when it was time on and the scores are close, we're going to win the game. We rarely lost games which were close. They were absolutely fantastic. We'd train hard for that. And he used to say, no one will be able to match us if we play 100 minutes of pressure football then some stage we will crack the opposition. And lots of occasions, you know, those words kept ringing in our ears when we were down in games, you know, that if we played for 100 minutes under the pressure and the fitness that Tommy instilled into the side, that uh, we would break the opposition. And lot, most occasions we did. But also the style. No finessing. Like, no, I'm not a brain surgeon or a test pilot or anything like that. Just a hard straight at the ball. And I think the game is still basically that way. And I think our style got us through on a lot of occasions. So there's a couple of things in my favour, I would say. Uh, and I think a lot of people probably overlook that. It was just a simple game plan, but everybody knew it. And um, they just, uh, we really trained hard and probably did a lot of contesting work, which a lot of people don't do. Do you think for those of us of the next generation, KB, there's a, a tendency to look back on Tommy's game plan and maybe even oversimplified a little with sayings like, just kick it long to Royce Hart? Yeah, so I mean, that's a bit of a joke. Kick it long to Royce and, uh, and get out of his way. Royce was a great player and a you know, pivotal player on our, on our forward line. He wanted the player with the ball to um, bypass the player on the mark, either by players running by. So you'd handball either over the man on the mark or to the side of the mark, which we see a lot these days. But he didn't want people just to belt the ball into the forward line. He wanted them to kick it to an advantage to the person that was down there on the forward line. And, and defensively, you know, Tommy was really big and, you know, chasing and, and tackling, putting pressure on the opposition, smothering the ball, you know, strong punching from behind. And even, even in the centre bounce, you know, his idea was, well, if you can, if you can get a player to jump up, and can thump the ball 20 metres going your way and a wave of players running out of that centre square, then you can run onto the ball and then all of a sudden you've got the ball into your forward line and that puts the opposition under pressure. And so all these sorts of things were, were tactics that Tommy had, which was all built around fitness and being fitter and stronger than the opposition. He had the reputation of not making too many in-game moves. Is, is that fair? He used to say he puts a lot of time and effort into picking the side and for players to play on certain individuals and to play certain roles. And as a result, you know, after five minutes, if it's not going to plan, well, you don't throw anything out the window. You try and show confidence in that particular player because you've, you've spent all week picking that player in that particular position. And that, that, was, that was vital, I reckon, in the success of, of Richmond. Because if, you, if, in fact, your opponent got on top of you early in the game, you weren't being dragged or moved to another position or or made to feel inferior. You know, he, he would back you in and uh, he would say at the breaks, you know, that he's got confidence in you. You know, if you played your very best, you can actually beat this opponent. So that was one of the, one of the strengths of Tommy. But he, he would make moves if he felt it was the right thing to do. And he probably won the premiership for Richmond in 1969 in the second last game of the year when Richmond had to beat Carlton to make the finals. After half time, he, he moved Billy Barrett who was our champion centre player. Uh, he moved him to full forward. He moved Eric Moore from full forward into the centre. And Billy kicked eight goals after half time on Wes Loft. And we got up and we won the game. And then that led us to winning the premiership in 1969. If we don't win that game, we don't win the premiership. So in a way, we won the premiership by a move that Tommy made uh, in the second last round of the season. Talk your damn head off. Get across and use your bloody body. Look at that word there. Bloody aggressive. How many years have been aggressive so far? We're not running straight at the ball. That's a cruel part about it, Tigers. Nothing more tiger 
tiger, a wounded tiger. Kevin, fair income, mate, you've got to put your boot into the ball. You're too slow to do all this finessing. Bloody back pocket plumber. That's what I want. You see the bloody straight, get your boot to the damn thing. Head towards goal. Take us into the old rooms at the MCG then, KB, for a typical Tommy pre-match speech. Uh, he was a strong speaker, Tommy. He was a strong speaker. Always spoke from the heart. Appealed to players. He loved the players who played for him. He felt for the players. He never, ever wanted to embarrass a player publicly. He wanted to have faith in his players. Uh, but he was always a strong speaker prior to the game. He would pull out a little booklet he had. He'd have a little book pull out of his back pocket. He'd go through the opposition, their strengths, their weaknesses. He'd ask for feedback as far as that was concerned. And then, of course, he would be very strong on the way that we had to play ourselves, how to play the game, how he wanted the game to be played and how if we played together as a group and we did the right thing, then uh, we would win. So he was, he was, he was always strong, strong voice. Uh, he would raise his voice to implore players to give their absolute best. But he never, ever wanted to embarrass players. I'm very aware, I'm very aware that the players are human beings. I don't embarrass them or humiliate them. I made a point of that. I'm absolutely amazed at some of the things that I read from time to time and hear. Different people make excuses. And I think, well, if I've got anything to say, it's between me and the player, me and the team. And I'd be very, very aware, with, particularly with the cameras they've got nowadays and the microphones they've got nowadays, I wouldn't be saying too much in front of every player. Look, where there's a big group around, you don't know who is around. Even that goes for the people in the club as well, maybe board members, maybe members of the committees, and maybe the, uh, uh, the stewards and the trainers and things like that. You've got to be very careful what you do say because once you said something, you can't take it back. Mm. Yeah. Did you ever say things to players that you regretted? Where you I don't think so. Sometimes they might have been taken out of context and maybe with my slang it might have sounded a little bit different compared to somebody else. But I would be very aware that you can't insult their character and their integrity. Sometimes you can go crook about something that they did, uh, that's the actual action, but to call somebody weak and a coward or something like that, which I've heard uh, players have told me that their coaches have said that, absolutely amazes me. And they've said it in front of people as well. So that, I feel like, gosh, you're going to lose them forever. I can remember he told me the story once when he was coaching Collingwood. They were playing down at Geelong and Renee Kink was having a bad game. Well, in the box, they wanted to take Renee Kink off. Uh, this in the days, of course, when you had 19th and 20th, and once you're off, you couldn't come back on. And he was on the half-forward flank on the opposite side of the ground. In those days, you could actually take him off on the other side of the ground. Right. And then the player that was taken off would have to walk around the ground to come back to uh, where the coach was sitting. But he refused to take him off the ground because it meant he would have had to walk around the boundary line and he would have copped the abuse all the way around half the ground uh, by the opposition supporters. And he felt for his players like that. He yeah. didn't want that to happen. So he, he didn't take him off. He didn't take him off. The, the faith he had in the players and the love he had for players and the appreciation, I think that's why players wanted to play for Tommy and, 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 and played with their heart and soul. I think spent a lot of time with them. And I suppose that was... Uh... A bit of a criticism towards me because of the amount of time I did speak with the players and be with them, but I felt that was my job. Even though other people said, you've got to look after the committee, the board, administration, remember they put you in the job, they keep you in the job. Well, I don't. They, I think that really if you've got to suck up to people to keep your job, I prefer not have it. And I just think if you go doing okay in the job that you're in, 
that should be enough recommendation for you to keep the job. But they're probably right. And no, I didn't do that. But I think that the players were fantastic for me because I did spend a lot of time with them. Uh, I had them home at our place. Uh, we uh, on the phone all the time. I'd drop in to see them. And I, I really had a general interest in them, not only in them, but in their families, their wives, their children, and things like that. And I guess that was probably the way that I went about those things, yeah. Did that just come naturally to you, or did you, like, you just were genuinely interested in them, and, or did you, go, did you say consciously, well, right, if I'm going to have these players on my side, I need to really look after them? No, nah, it was, it's just the way I am, and I did the same up at Shepparton, I would say. We had a lot of times, like, I'm a non-drinker, as you know, and non-smoker, uh, but I'd have a lot of parties at my place, and it wasn't that I was crook on the, on alcohol or anything like that, if they want to do it, that's up to them. But I just hope they don't do the wrong thing by the club. And I let them do those things. I'm not standing over them all the time. That was the way that I looked at those types of things. But certainly spent a lot of time with them, but being real sincere in uh, and trying to help them not only in their football, but in other ways as well. Do you think we forget sometimes that they're, uh, they are people when they go out into the ground? We don't think that... You know, their wife may be sick or their daughter's, you know, having problems at school or their... That's right. Do we, do we forget that sometimes? Oh, absolutely. Oh, there's no doubt about that. And a lot of things would affect the player's performance. I think you would understand that. Probably even affect your performance in the job that you do. Sometimes you can have a bit of a down and there may be personal problems which is affecting you in some way. Well, the coach has got to quickly find out and do everything in their power to be very supportive and help them. You know, often I'm amazed at some of the things I read which coaches have done. I've heard them say, what do you want to be, a student or a footballer? Well, I think that it's very important that the players do work and you help them as much as you possibly can. And I think they'll play better for you if you're a little bit supportive of the things they're doing away from the football as well. And I'm just really quite, I'm really a bit concerned in, at, on occasions. Can you remember times when... You know, there were crises for players, say, on the eve of a match or on the day of a match where play some sort of counselling role or try and get them up, that sort of thing? Oh, yes, that would happen quite a, quite a bit. Not every week. It's not something that's going to happen a lot, I suppose, but there will be times when players, particularly when they're being criticised in the press, sometimes that can really hurt them and it probably builds up, builds up, builds up, builds up. And um, I, I would make a point of, say, taking a little bit extra time with that lad and maybe even patting him on the back for things that probably are going to go unnoticed. And just because they're not getting mentions in the paper or maybe not winning the statistics that somebody else is getting, they can still be a damn good player for us. And I would recognise those things and let the rest of the players know how important and everybody to help somebody else and may even get somebody else to help this lad as well. Tommy was a huge personality, a huge figure. And we played for Tommy. You know, we, we love Tommy as a coach. And if you can get your players to love you, you're you're going to be a pretty formidable coach. And uh, and I used to say, look, maybe we could have been called Una Data. It wouldn't have mattered. You know, we would have played the same as long as Tommy was the coach. So it was a very important time in in our playing lives that we we played under Tom Hakey. It's fair to say Tommy didn't talk as highly of the administrations he coached under at Collingwood, Geelong and the Sydney Swans as he did at Richmond. Oh, they were nowhere near, uh, say, smart as what the Tigers were. Uh, they were great to be at. Uh, they had a lot of problems, in, a lot of my, in my opinion. I thought lack of support by a couple of those clubs was absolutely amazing. That was from the people, the people who should have known better. Uh, but uh, 
in the main, as I say, I enjoyed being there and the players and some of the friendships that you make, I guess that's what it's all about. But sometimes you do need a little bit of support and often it's not always there. I'm talking about people around the board, people around the club, particularly past players and past coaches who actually um, sometimes have got too much to say, criticising the things that are actually happening. So I'm always aware when I go back to some of the clubs that I've been connected with that I hold my tongue and try and be very supportive of the present coach. Like in Danny Forley's case right now, and I think Danny was terrific last year, uh, but yeah, I'm always there if they want me, but I'm not going to be pushing myself in saying, what are you doing this for or what are you doing that for? Yeah. You're aware of that as a coach? Do you think, you know, what's sort of around you and that you're hearing a rumour here that someone's sniping you from the board or that whatever? Are you aware of that? Can that affect your performance as a coach? Do uh, well, it certainly does, and you do hear it. And often I even had players. I had players ring me up. I had players ring me up at a couple of different clubs saying that so-and-so was saying this and saying that and was more or less stabbing you in the back. I had players more or less letting me know, really a bit upset uh, because they didn't know how to handle that. And a little bit embarrassed for some of the other players as well, some of the quieter lads who were being told what they should be doing by somebody else. Well, he, he had a bit of contempt for boards. <laughs> he loved his old prison up at uh, Sheffernan. Uh, and he used to talk about him all the time there, and he used to say he'd buy and sell any of these guys down here in Melbourne. He loved people who gave loyal support, and uh, I think he, he felt at different stages that uh, boards were always operating in the background, and instead of supporting, they might have been you know, having a crack or talking behind your back and things like that. So he didn't really trust, I think, boards. I mean, at Richmond, I mean, some some of the board members he was really good friends with. But I think as a whole, he, he felt that uh, sometimes they could meddle with what the coach wanted to do. He just, <laughs> he would just go about what he wanted to do. He, he, he was pretty set in his ways in, in the way he wanted to play and the way he wanted to train, the way he wanted to do things. And that, that was an unshakable belief that he had. And when you look at his record, he was proven correct. You went through the, the, the mid-season sacking uh, experience. How, how tough was that? Uh, yes, well, it's not a f- nice thing to happen, but life goes on. And it's only part of it. And I keep on talking, even when I go around to the schools now, I talk about rejection. We all have that. You probably had that and you will get it again, all those types of things. And I say, you don't lay on the ground like a wimp. You more or less, sometimes it's a blessing in disguise. You can get up and have a go somewhere else and whatever. But I look at the lists right now. When I speak to the youngsters at the schools or at the football clubs I go to, 161 boys on lists last year were rejects from other league clubs. There was 11 in the grand final. The great bomber team, which everybody's classing as one of the greats of all time, had four of them. And of the 16 best and fairest winners of the, say, year 2000, four of them were rejects from other league clubs. Mm. Andrew Schwabel, Brett Montgomery, Peter Bell, Troy Cook. So that's a great indication that it's not the end of the world when you do get rejected. And as I say, when it does happen, it's humiliation. You're really embarrassed. I can live with it. I get on, do other things, and I'll probably stick it to somebody. But my family, my daughters, my wife and my parents, they're absolutely oh, embarrassed like you wouldn't believe. That's, that's probably where it hurts the most then, is it? Is the effect so. it has on your family? That's very, very true. Yes, it must be absolutely enormous to them. It probably is to the person as well. That you're not going to feel too great, don't get me wrong. Uh, but as I say, I just more or less live with it. I guess for you, you're able to bounce back and, and get other job, other you know, appointments down the track, whereas some haven't been so lucky, have they? No, but even so, when I look at my last situation, when I was with the Swans, and we did pretty okay, uh, 
we were second twice at the end of the year. I was there for three years, yeah. and we won game out the finals in my last year, and that was a final five, incidentally, not a final 15 like they've got now. And if you don't make the final eight, let's be realistic, you should be relegated to the mid-Gippy League, shouldn't you? Half the teams in the competition make the final eight, but this was a final five, which in my opinion is the best way to go. We won game out the finals, and they sacked me at the end of the year. Do you think that today, perhaps, the game with all the assistant coaches and all that goes on, that they overcomplicate things? With, oh, uh, I've got no doubt. Tactics. Oh, oh gosh. In fact, I often say if time management was to go through a football club, there'd be a lot of people looking for a job. <laughs> I can assure you of that. But the funny thing about the football right now, and I know we've become a lot more professional, don't get me wrong, but everybody is trying to get an up on one of the opposition teams. So they'll put extra person on to do this, to do this, to do that. And all of a sudden, we got... Every club's got a bigger staff than my Emporium. What they all do, I wouldn't have a clue. But really, I keep on saying, this is a very basic, simple game. And the sides that win the premiership in recent times are the ones who are stuck to a pretty simple plan. And it's basically exactly the same as we played during the 60s and the 70s. And you've got to ask some of the coaches, they will tell you exactly that. And where they were switching players all over the place, they don't do that now. Even look at Kevin Sheedy's great team. You could name the back line from, say, six or seven players which have played there for the last two years. And yet prior to that, we were all saying, Kevin does this, Kevin does that. Well, I think that the success of the Bombers in recent times has been the fact is that they've been very settled. They all know each other. They're not getting some fella from up on the forward line now coming down who hasn't got a clue about picking up anybody or punching from behind or being tight, things like that. And I just think that sometimes they're, trying to, they're all trying to say, be a bit of an innovator, yeah. Speaking of Kevin, then, you, you know him so well. What is it about Sheeds, then, do you think, that's made him a success? Well, I think that they've got a great club out there, and you've only got to see the support that they've had. I know they've been very critical of him from time to time, particularly the ex-players on the board. That's very noticeable. And maybe it's a thing because he comes from Richmond, I'm not quite certain, but he's answered them in the best possible way. That's win and keep winning, and their record has been unbelievable. Four premierships now in 20 years, which isn't, say, over-over-sensational if it comes to a point, but their success rate has been quite amazing. And I think Kevin has... Uh, he, he's more than a coach out there. I think he's a, a, a publicity arm. He's a, a, a cheer squad leader, isn't he, really? He leads all over the place, and he does anything for his team, and I think that's really marvellous, and that shows, I think, the players can see... I even got a bit of a surprise when he was going crook about Mitchell White and I kept on thinking, knowing Kevin, what's the reason he's doing this? What's the reason he's doing this? Because there was no player tougher, or probably dirtier than Kevin Sheedy and I thought he was an absolute great. I loved him. Yeah, I really loved him. I thought he was the best back pocket player that ever played. But by gee, winning friends and influenced people was definitely not in his bag of tricks as a footballer, I can tell you now. The players that you've had underneath you who have gone on to succeed as coaches such as Sheeds, did you, when you saw them as players, think, oh, he might make a good coach one day? Did, did you see anything in them that you thought would make them good coaches? A couple I did, yes, a couple. There's a lot of players who eventually did coach who I uh, got a bit of a surprise and probably did okay as well. Uh, some of the players, though, when you see them out there and you know their history and you know their convictions, and I've had a lot of them come back and say, oh, Apologise to me. Apologise for their attitude, their behaviour, their lack of discipline. Some of them have been league coaches, incidentally. Did you coach Mick Malthouse at yes, Richmond? Yes, yeah. How did you... Did oh, you... good, honest goer. Yeah, no, he was really good. We got him. 
We got him from St Kilda. St Kilda didn't want him. He's another reject. The same as Kevin Sheedy was a reject. People don't understand that, but he was actually zoned to Melbourne, who said he won't make league football. 35 years on, he's still in league football, so I think they were bad judges at that particular time. But Michael was a good, hard, honest, back-pocket player who had a go, trained hard, and good attitude, so like, and fun around the place. Probably he's not fun around the place now to a lot of people, but he was really fun around the place. Do you subscribe to that theory then that the, the tough back pocket players is what, what did you call Sheeds? I wanted a back pocket plumber. Back pocket plumber, yeah. yeah. Do you think they make the best coaches or not necessarily? I do. I really do. And I've even got a theory on that. Because I think a lot of the forwards they really believe that they've been treated hard as a forward. So when they get the chance to take over the reins, they're gonna change the world. They want every ball kicked ten metres in front of the opponent, lace up. And so they'll mess around, finesse around instead of getting on with the game. And it's quite amazing when you look at it. In fact, I was thinking nearly every one of the coaches who finished in the final late year was a back pocket player. Mm. You realise that? Gee. Yeah. Yeah. So was winning a grand final all that you thought it would be? Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And the great part about it, Anthony, people keep on bringing it up all the time. I've often heard people say, is it hit you yet? Like I heard the chap who just uh, trained the winner of the Melbourne Cup mm. And he said, oh, not really, but it, 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 it's there forever. And it's what we talk about. You talk about when you've won the premiership, not when you ran second or third or down the list or nearly got there or whatever. It's the games, and you're always remembered because of it. And anybody who coaches a or played in a grand final, that is the pinnacle of your career, isn't it, really? I know and heard so often when boys have won Brownlows that they didn't play in a premiership, and that's the thing that they really, really miss. After we won one grand final, and I'd seen the way the coach the previous year had run around, put his arms up in the air and jumped up and all that, and I thought, oh, what a poser. And I thought, I'm definitely not going to do that. You wouldn't want to know. By the time I'd got down to the fence, I was a raving lunatic. I couldn't believe it. I really, I thought, I was definitely certain this is what we've trained for, be calm, be calm, this is what was expected, all that sort of stuff. The people were hugging you and people in the... In the uh, box were really patting you on the back and kissing you and that. By the time I was caught up with it, after going 20 metres was on the ground, I really thought, oh gosh, what have I done? I really genuinely thought about it well before when we're going to win this premiership. Uh, just, well, treat it as though it's part of uh, life and whatever, but it just, the emotion just gets to you, I suppose. Yeah. Coaching thoughts and philosophies of the great Tommy Hafey, who passed away in 2014. There was no shortage of tributes to Tom the coach and person at his special funeral at the MCG, the place where he had triumphed on four occasions on footy's biggest day. Yes, it was lovely to see so many people uh, turn up to show their appreciation for a person that touched so many people. He loved football. He absolutely loved football and he loved talking about football. Uh, he used to say, you know, if we build more football grounds and more football clubs, you know, we can tear down more jails. He was really strong on the fact that if you could get your kid into a, a football club, the kid would meet good people there and didn't matter what colour you were or what colour creed or any, anything that's just normal with a football club. People just wanted to be your friend and help you play football and be part of the club and the atmosphere. So he, he loved going around to football clubs. He loved training even when he's finished as a league coach. He, he travelled more miles around Australia than anyone I've known in terms of going to sporting complexes and talking about football and talking about fitness. I mean, if there was one person who lived his life 
uh, as he preached, it, it was Tommy. Just on that, on that, you know, t-shirt, Tommy, and the fitness. It was mm. like I'd see him down Beach Road, riding through his seventies, and he was phenomenal, wasn't he? He was. Uh, he just wouldn't miss. You know, he just. Um, it was just. It was just his lifestyle. That's that's what he wanted to do. It was something that drove him every day. That uh, you know, he had to get up at you know five o'clock in the morning, and he had to go for a run. You know, five, six, seven k run. He had to go for a swim. He had to do his his thousand push-ups. He had to do his thousand sit-ups. And even even when he was uh, you know traveling around the country, and he might have been you know staying in country towns because he was training a football club. He was doing exactly the same thing there. He would get up in the morning <laughs> and go for his run and do his push-ups and try and find somewhere where he could go for a swim. That was his lifestyle. That's how he started every day. It was it was something that was always part of his life. It was what he loved doing, and um, and that's what he did. Do you miss him, KB? Yes, uh, I miss him. I miss him a lot. Um, we used to speak every day uh, on the phone when he was coaching the Tigers for, for ten years. We had lunch three times a week. Uh, Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays at the uh, the old Commonwealth Cafeteria at the top of uh, Spring Street. Even when he was coach at Collingwood, we still went to lunch Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays. He was he was a great friend. He was a great family friend. The whole Hafey family are great friends of the Bartlett's. Tommy was godfather to my first uh, born uh, Shana, and Maureen was godmother. So we've had a tremendous association. Uh, we holiday together, you know, down at Sorrento. Uh, we spent so much time together. And, um, you know, I miss him every day. Kevin Bartlett paying a very personal tribute to his former coach and great friend, the legendary Tommy Hafey. I hope you've enjoyed listening to Tom's coaching thoughts and the insights of KB. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show on Apple, Google and Spotify podcasts and leave us a review. Or join the conversation on Twitter at MCC underscore members. As we head into cricket season, fingers crossed we'll soon be back at the MCG to watch the Boxing Day text. In the meantime, keep an eye out for more great content and we'll see you soon at the gym.